The wealthmanagement.com Advisor Innovations Podcast is sponsored by LPL. As financial advice continues to evolve, LPL is at the forefront. Whether it's growing your RIA or building an independent practice, advisors can pick the business model, services, technology, and product mix that best meets their clients' needs. As a top wealth management firm, 100% dedicated to advisor success, LPL looks forward to learning how they can help you build your tomorrow today. For information and show notes, go visit lpl.com slash advisor innovation. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Advisor Innovations Podcast. As you all know, I think by now, this is the cast that gives me the excuse to chat with folks moving the wealth management industry into new and interesting directions. And with me today, I'm very pleased to have Scott McKillop, the founder and CEO of First Ascent Asset Management, known, I think, as the first flat fee turnkey asset management platform in the wealth management area. And one that I think is just in the past few months topped a billion dollars in assets on the platform. Scott, is that correct? That's correct. Yes. Well, thanks very much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I, I appreciate it. Looking forward to the conversation. I got to ask before we get into it, um, how are you handling a re-entry into normal post-pandemic life? Are you uh, still uh, working remotely? Or are you calling from the yeah, office? Yeah, we, we moved to virtual mode pretty early on, I think March 13th, if I recall, of 2020. And, and we've stayed in that mode ever since. We gave up our, our big office space. And we do have a little office that we can all get together in if we need to. But pretty much we're working from our homes and it's working really well for us. So, and that's uh, in the Denver area, correct? Yes. Mm-hmm, in Denver area. And how many uh, employees at First Ascent now? Well, we have 10 full-time and two part-time, and then we have four members of our independent investment committee, uh, 16, I guess, altogether, if you count, count all of those folks. And one of the things that's been actually great about the, the virtual operation is that we, we hired four people last year, and one of them was here in Denver, but three of them were in other states. So that really opened up the world for us. So we can, um, we can find talent anywhere now. It's yeah, that's really great. Nice. Would that not have happened before the pandemic? Would you have been that looking- probably would not have happened? I'll tell you. I mean, part of it is uh, would have been my problem. I just I could not have foreseen how well virtual operations um, have gone for us. I would have I, I would have been a little old school, frankly. I would have thought you know you had to have all the employees in the office and you had to see them show up every day, and and I I wouldn't have thought of hiring anybody in. Arkansas or South Carolina or Arizona, where we now have employees. And so this has really opened up some great opportunities for us. Are you a convert to uh, full-time remote employment? I think so. It'll, it, something will have to change pretty dram- dramatically in our world, I think, before we decide to, to go back to uh, a central office. We uh, have, even in the Denver area here, we had employees who were spread out uh, quite a bit geographically and had long commutes and so forth. And uh, a lot of them have kids, so forth. So this has really made their lives a lot better and a lot easier. <laughs> I keep asking if people want to come back to the office and get together. And uh, pretty much uh, I get a negative response to that. So we do, um, we do like to get together once in a while for you know, a conference so we could see each other face to face, or maybe we'll have a meal to celebrate something um, uh, along the way. But really, I think we're we're pretty much locked into the virtual approach now for a while. Well, I guess the reason that I ask this, and I'll get into the prepared questions here in a minute. Uh, but uh, I, you know, this is not your first uh, uh, entrepreneurial rodeo, right? First nope. ascent. Uh, you have uh, started companies in the past, and and uh, as a small comp- company, as a, as an entrepreneur. Uh, mm-hmm. 
think there was a, a bias towards, you know, having to have people in the room around the conference table, spitballing, ta- spitballing ideas, yep. uh, just having that serendipity of, uh, of in-person uh, uh, contact. Yep. I think a lot of small companies and entrepreneurs or smaller, you know, uh, startups really thrived on. Uh, and you're not finding that to be an issue currently. It, you know, it's, it's, I think, I, I think there probably is something lost in virtual world, but, but a lot is gained. And I think the, the um, things that are gained have outweighed what's lost. I think I miss the personal contact and so forth, but we do get together twice a day on zoom as a group, <clears throat> everybody shows up and, in the morning uh, and in the afternoon, and we all say hello and we talk to each other and we do occasionally bat around the kinds of ideas that we might have batted around over a conference table in days gone by. But I think there's there's definitely something that's not that's not quite the same and maybe uh, not quite as good about being uh, apart from each other. But but at this point, frankly, we're so busy. <laughs> I think it really helps us to have time away from each other and just be able to focus on the, the work that we have to do. Yeah. That, that idea of a deep focus is I think easier in a remote yeah, definitely. context. So uh, take us to the beginning for the listeners who don't, uh, I should mention that you're a numerous winner of the wealthmanagement.com industry awards for your work there at First Ascent. Yeah. Uh, take us back to the beginning of the firm. What problem were you looking to solve with First Ascent? For yeah, well, so the, I'll answer that on, on two levels. There's sort of a macro problem, which I think everybody in the financial services industry can see. It's so obvious. We've got millions of people in this country who, who have inadequate resources. They, they need financial advice. A lot of them haven't saved very well. Uh, a lot of financial illiteracy, if you will. People don't know exactly what to do with their money or how to, how to do it. They're long, longer lifespans these days. So people are living to, you know, into their 80s and 90s and even beyond. So there's a big problem here. We've got to somehow figure out how to take people who don't really know how to deal with their personal finances and get them in shape so that we don't all inherit this problem down the road where the government or us individually through charities or whatever are having to take care of large numbers of people who just don't have the resources to take care of themselves. And so that's a big, a big problem. And the industry is kind of lines up in different ways around that. Some people think this is a great opportunity to fleece the flock, you know, take advantage of people who really don't um, understand their finances or investment uh, very well, and then there are other people who say, "Hey, this is this is a big problem. We need to do something about it. If 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 I don't do something about it, you know, who who's going to do something about it?" So that's kind of where where we got started on a macro level was just saying, "Hey, there's a there's a big problem. Let's all figure out how we can at least contribute to the solving of this problem." And then on a mi- more micro level, you know, we were uh, TAMP industry people, most of us uh, in prior lives, and or working in the RIA space. And um, we thought, well, we know a lot about that part of the world. Let's try to at least change a little corner of the world and, and come up with some ideas that will make it more affordable and easier for financial advisors to provide um, great outsourced portfolio management services to their clients. And we had a handful of ideas, you know, five or six ideas that I think were pretty um, interesting. Be glad to you know, go into those if you want to. But that's, that's really the problem that we were trying to solve is that there was this, there's this, this big picture problem. And then there's the, what are we going to do about it? part of the problem? And um, I think we're, we're getting a fair amount of attention from the advisor community 
because of the way we've tried to approach this, mm-hmm. this uh, portfolio management problem. Yeah, and I would love to hear some of the ideas that you came up with. I know the one that seemed to have stuck uh, was this notion of the flat fee uh, yeah. uh, uh, structure. Uh, yep. No one, I think, in the asset management world had been doing that before. You know, and uh, and I think your your theory there is that it's yeah. really no more difficult to manage a one million dollar portfolio than it is a ten million dollar portfolio. How did you yeah. focus around the flat fee? Yeah, well, this is this is uh, certainly a characteristic of the TAMP industry where where we operate. It's a little little different for financial advisors, but if you if you think about it, the technology in our business is such that a hundred thousand dollar account comes in or a two million dollar account comes in, and it doesn't really make any difference to us. You know, we're we're managing the portfolios using the same technology in a similar fashion. We're sort of taking the intellectual capital that we have as a firm and spreading it out over all of these accounts, and unless there's some specific customization issue that we have to deal with, which comes up uh, periodically. Uh, A lot of these accounts are really very similar. And so it just didn't make sense, even where there were differences between a million dollar account and a hundred thousand dollar account, you know, it wasn't an astronomical difference. And so there was just a lack of logic in the pricing structure, at least in the TAMP world. Uh, we, we decided to do something about it. <laughs> it was just, you know, it was pretty, again, it was, I remember sitting there one day going, well, if we don't do that, but you know, who's going to do it? Maybe we should just do it. And so that's, that's what we did. Uh, we just said, Hey, let's go out there and try to figure out what the right price is. You know, we've had a couple of iterations of our flat fee pricing, but we, I think have settled into a pretty good, a pretty good fee structure that works for us. And also is a great deal for the advisors and the clients that work with us. Yeah, for sure. Um, and, and I think some, there've been some folks who have followed along in your footsteps, I think, but yep. you were, you were uh, uh, new with that. When you first launched that idea, what kind of feedback did you get from the industry? Was it immediately apparent to advisors what a great deal this was? Or yeah, no, I think it was it was very positive. The idea itself was very positive. So, just being perfectly candid, you know, when you start a, a, a new firm, a new asset management firm in particular, and you have no assets under management and no track record, people may like your flat fee pricing idea, but there's still a, a lot of hurdles yeah. to overcome. So it. You know, the, the early years were, were difficult and we, I guess like any new idea, we, we found enough early adopters to keep us moving forward. And then they liked what we did and they told their friends and people like you guys uh, wrote articles about us and gave us awards and so forth. And, you know, it all started to build. And at this point now we're growing at a pretty, uh, pretty good clip. And so the, the flat fee now is, uh, is really drawing a lot of interest and people are not so worried about the fact that we, you know, we've been around six years now, I think. And I think at the end of last year, we had 1.3 billion or something like that under management. So now people say, okay, fine. You guys are, you're going to be here. You're established firm, uh, like what you're doing. Let's, um, let's talk about how you're going to help my clients. And, and what do advisors find on the platform? I mean, you started with, I think, basically the four portfolios. Yeah. Around. Uh... Yeah. We had, we had three initially. So one of the ideas in the portfolio management area, was we, and again, you have to kind of think back five or six years, there, there was this sort of what I perceived as a religious divide almost between the passive management people and the active management people. And there was very little, there were very little thinking going on around how to combine those two. So we thought, well, this is a great opportunity because we believe that active management can add some value in certain situations. And we um, know that passive management, uh, which forms the base of most of what we do, can, can really contribute quite a bit. So 
we combined those two and had three, three portfolios. And almost immediately, people said, I want a 100% equity portfolio, which we didn't have. And they said, I want a 20% equity portfolio, which we also didn't have. So we very quickly had five portfolios. And then they wanted a tax-managed version of our portfolios. So we created those. So now we have 10 portfolios. And then the, the passive people showed up and said, love that flat fee, but I don't want any active management in my portfolio. So we created a series of portfolios for them. And then the DFA people showed up and said, love that flat fee, but both my clients and I drank the Kool-Aid a long time ago. So we need portfolios that use DFA funds. So we built actually two different DFA portfolios and have a good, strong relationship with that firm. And then there was another group that showed up and said, love that flat fee. I love factor investing, but I don't really um, necessarily need DFA funds. So we built those portfolios and then ESG portfolios came along, kind of the same thing. So we've, what we've really been doing is just responding to interest from advisors in different styles of portfolio management. And I think that's one of the things that makes us a little bit unique as well, is that we don't come to the world with a preconception about how things must be done from a portfolio management point of view. We, we have a pretty um, a broad view of that and, and realize that there are many different ways you can manage portfolios successfully. And take different approaches and that the advisor community has lots of uh, different opinions about how they want to see their portfolios managed. So we've tried to provide a, a broad array. There are, some, there are some things we won't do. You know, if somebody showed up and said, love that fat, flat fee, but I want you to make a market timing series of portfolios for us, you know, we, we wouldn't do that. Hmm. Um, but they're, you know, within the, the broad general uh, definition of what we believe is legitimate portfolio management, or at least legitimate portfolio management that we know how to do well. Um, there's lots of different ways to go ahead. So how many advisors do you work with now? Um, we have uh, selling agreements I, with, I think, about 200 uh, now. Not mm-hmm. all of those are actively writing business. I think probably maybe 150 advisors, something like that, um, are actually uh, writing business actively with us now. And uh, strictly in the RIA space? Yeah, pretty much. We have, um, again, if you go back to our beginning, when you when you have no track record and no assets under management, you don't pass anybody's due diligence screen, right? So none of the broker dealers wanted to talk to us. And so we really were left with no alternative, but just to work in the RIA space. And then by the time we got big enough to pass due diligence screens, we we weren't that interested. We were, we were, doing just fine in the RIA channel. And that, that channel is, is one that we really like just because the, the broker-dealer world is a little, a little tougher. You know, they, they have their hand out a lot. <laughs> they want you to go to their conference for $40,000 a pop or whatever. You know, that's just not, you know, we're not built to do that. We're not pricing our products to uh, have a lot of extra uh, goo like that. So we're, we're trying to keep things really um, low cost. So um, so we, yeah, we have 90, probably 97% of our advisors are, are just independent RIAs that work with us. Yeah. Okay. And you recently um, uh, tapped into the 401k space a little bit. Yeah. Can you- yeah. Yeah. We, uh, we, we got involved in that again, it was an advisor demand issue and uh, some advisors showed up and said, Hey, there's some opportunities here. Could you help us out? So we, we helped them with a number of things. We, we kind of went away from the managed portfolio series that we that we normally do. I mean, we do offer those in the 401k area, but we also created just 
fund lists that advisors could use that didn't involve us managing the portfolios at all, but just making sure that somebody was doing the due diligence and, and coming up with lists of funds that would that would satisfy the needs of the broader 401k participant community. So yeah, so we, we've uh, entered that area as well. Are you doing the, the models on that side? I mean, would you do that? Yeah, we do models there too. And so there, there, it really depends a lot on what the advisor wants to offer to the 401k plan. So we can offer the fund list. We can offer different types of models. As you know, as I described, we have, you know, we have DFA models, we have passive models, we have, you know, active and passive models. So whatever the advisor wants to use in that uh, environment, whatever the plan sponsor is interested, we'll, uh, we'll provide those. I, go back to the DFA models for a minute. How sure. tricky is it um, with uh, dimensional funds to to get them to wrap their heads around the idea of the flat fee pricing? Or yeah, they yeah. They so they didn't have any problem with the flat fee pricing. I think they they approached us. You know, they're they're a big, well established firm. We we actually love those guys now, and they they've fully embraced us and worked very closely with us. But in the early days, they were they were. Um, I'll just have to say they were very cautious about working with us, and it seemed that it took them a long time to warm up to us and to what we were doing. But I think they were just, you know, they're a firm like that has, has a lot to lose if they, if they get involved with somebody who's not, not going to make it long-term or, you know, who they're not too sure about. And so they, they checked us out for, I guess you could say they did their due diligence for a long time. And then at some point you, we could just feel the difference. It was like somebody flipped a switch and all of a sudden they were very much behind what we were doing. And now we're, we're using not just their funds, but we've started using their ETFs and we are likely to start using some of their separate accounts in the, uh, in the near future as well. So yeah, we have a good relationship there. That's great. You also recently, uh, I know, bought a client onboarding technology platform. Yeah. Yeah. That was kind of an interesting story. So in our early days, one of the things that we wanted to do was use technology in a way that was a little bit better than the way TAMPs in general were using it. And in particular, the, the problem we were trying to attack was the onboarding process. So again, five or six years ago, when we started out, most TAMPs were still using paper-based account opening procedures. And there were you know massive <laughs> stacks of documents were being FedExed all over the place for wet signatures. And, and, and I was watching what the robos were doing. And I thought, wow, this is so much better. They're, they're opening accounts online and they're, they're using technology instead of, um, instead of the, the US mail or whatever. And that's a, that's a much better approach. So we worked with a firm. It's actually run by a, a guy that I'd worked with at two other firms. And he, he said, uh, well, I can, build, I can build that for you. So we described this onboarding process that we wanted which was we couldn't find any existing robo technology that we liked because we found the robos kind of sh showing off a lot, you know, in their technology development, which is what you'd expect from a technology firm, right? They, they, they were more interested in bells and whistles and lots of different pathways you could go down. We wanted something that was really simple. And this is a, this is a, a theme that you'll see through a lot of what we do. We want things 
to be simple for the advisor community. We don't want them to be simple, simplistic in, in the sense that they're, they're not sophisticated processes or portfolios, but we want it to be easy to work with us and easy for advisors to understand and easy for their clients to understand what's going on. So we built this technology, uh, account onboarding technology that was literally anybody who of average intelligence could go onto our website if they got access to the to the account opening technology and, and go through the process of entering the data, generating a proposal, going through the risk tolerance process if they wanted to, and opening account. I mean, it just takes, it takes minutes. There's no multiple data entry. It's just, it's really just, you know, in some ways, I guess it's a, it's a tribute to the ideas that the robos have, but I think we simplified it to the point the advisors could, even advisors who didn't really care about technology could use this could use this onboarding tool. And um, as a result, I think we, our, our online onboarding tool has been ranked for two years in a row now, the number one online portfolio management tool in the Bob Duras, Joel Bruckenstein advisor software survey. So it really resonated with advisors, this whole idea of, of just boiling it down to a, a real simple pathway. And, and so we got to a point where we really wanted that that technology to belong to the firm, and also, frankly, wanted the the fellow who had developed it uh, for us to be a part of our firm. Because, as I said, I'd worked with him before, and he's a wonderful guy. And so, yeah, so we bought his um, his firm this uh, this year, and he's he's one of our remote employees. He works from South Carolina, and and now the technology uh, belongs to our firm, and we've got Walter on board too. So, it's That's great. great transaction for us. Yeah. yeah is, and so do you ever foresee yourself licensing that software out to others or is this something that's going to be purely a, uh, it's for- a good question. So I, we've been approached an, a number of times about that and we haven't, we haven't done it. We're, we're very focused on staying focused. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, you know, it's one of those things where we're, we're, we're still a small crew. We have a limited amount of bandwidth. We have lots of new advisor relationships that are coming on board. And it really takes pretty much all of our capacity right now to, to serve the clients that we have, bring the new uh, advisors on board and, and respond to the needs of that group and that community. And so if we were you know, if we were a big, big venture-funded firm with lots of money sloshing around in our bank accounts, and and had time to, uh, you know, to think about building new new segments of our business, you know, we might end up going in that direction. But really, at this point, if we want to keep doing what we're doing at the level that I think we're doing it, um, again, we we've, we've been ranked the number one TAMP two years in a row, also in that Beerus Bruckenstein survey. So I think you know we want to stay focused on producing an excellent result for the advisors that we work with. And so that means turning down opportunities that, that might otherwise be there and just staying focused on what we're doing. So that's that's the approach we've taken. And bringing Walter on board, is that will there be iterative improvements of the of the software going forward? Yes. Yeah. So we've got so advisors, <laughs> you know, this is probably not a surprise to you. Advisors come up with all kinds of good ideas about <laughs> things they would like us to do. And whatever it is we do, there's always one more idea. And, and so having, having Walter on board allows us to pursue those ideas. Like we're getting ready to introduce a direct indexing offering, for example. And so we've got to modify the account onboarding technology that we have to account for the onboarding of direct indexing portfolios. 
So that's just you know one example, a new development that's uh, that we're in the process of right well, now. Let me let me ask you about that then, because I'm a direct index sure. hot topic and. Uh, a lot of people talking about it. I don't know how many yeah. of us are actually doing it yet, uh, but you see a demand out there for it. Yeah, absolutely. We have. It's it's actually kind of funny at our firm right now because um, we have we have more demand for than we want at this point because we're just it's a it's a it's a different, more complicated program than managing ETF portfolios, and and we wanted to have enough time to learn it. We're, we're working, just to fill in the story, we're working with Just Invest, who, you know, now part of the Vanguard or, organization. So Just Invest is our sub-advisor. And so we, we need to learn their processes in, in, in opening accounts and managing accounts and so forth so that we can be um, good partners to the advisors that we're working with and to Just Invest. And that takes some time. This is not a um, this is not a small undertaking. And so we've been trying to keep this thing under our hats, but, but advisors started asking us and we said, oh yeah, we, we are actually going to do that. And so we, we've started letting people in the back door uh, a little bit and we're onboarding some, some clients, but I think it'll, it'll probably be about 30 days before we make an official uh, announcement to the world that we're ready. Days. To- you must've been working on it for a while. That's, that's, that's quick. Yeah. Um, uh, do you find the demand for the direct indexing coming from advisors being more around their desire to demonstrate some value to the client and then earned value? I'm not, I'm not saying that facetiously, but yeah, yeah. value to the client around customization in terms of values or uh, social investing, or is it, you know, tax loss harvesting capabilities? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's really, I think it's coming from, from three, three areas. So one, the, the most obvious one, the one that we initially had uh, targeted was for ESG purposes. Mm-hmm. So we built, as I mentioned, we built a new line of ESG portfolios that are using ETFs. And we realized as we were building those portfolios that they have some limitations in terms of the ability of the investor to truly customize the ESG aspects of, the, of those portfolios. So we knew that there would be some, we, we estimated maybe 20% of the ESG uh, investors that we would encounter would want some more customization capabilities. So we went into the direct index idea with, with that in mind. Uh, but then we found pretty quickly that there's a, a whole group out there that have legacy positions uh, that they want to incorporate into their portfolios. They want tax loss harvesting is another area. And then there are some uh, folks who've just who've been in separately managed accounts before and they, they like owning the stocks. They do, the clients like owning the stocks, but they don't necessarily like either the performance or the fees that were associated with a separately managed account product. So they're, they're coming in the direct indexing door as well. So pretty broad set of needs there that are addressed. It's not for everybody. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a product that really, I think, fills a very specific need or set of needs, if you will. And, and then the ETF world and the mutual fund world can take care of probably the majority of, of client investment needs. But, but having both of those capabilities really allows us to kind of fill out our suite. Yeah, that's exciting stuff. I, 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 yeah. I'm interested to see where that goes. Uh, and, and working with Just Invest, I think, is a, a good uh, partner to have. They were, uh, I think they're out in, based out in the Bay Area and um, were just acquired, I think, just last year. So yeah, they've been great to work with. We love we love those those guys, and uh, I think they're you know, they're doing what any small firm would do, being absorbed by a, a bigger firm. You know, they're they're um, kind of learning what 
you know, the, the peculiarities of their new partner and their new, um, their new owner. And, and at the same time, um, trying to keep up with the business uh, that's coming in their door too. Yeah, for sure. The money that's going to First Ascent, where's it coming from? When you talk to advisors and they, they put money on your platform, you know, are they pulling it out of the other separately managed accounts? Is it new money coming into the firm? Yeah, it's on the upswing or yeah, it's 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 really two sources. So when when we first started the firm, I thought it would be mainly a takeaway game where we would be getting uh, assets from other camps, and that's certainly part of it. But kind of an unusual thing happened once we uh, once we showed up in the marketplace with our flat fee. A lot of advisors came forward and said, "Hey." Um, I've been wanting to outsource for a long time, but I haven't found um, anybody who, who I thought charged a reasonable fee for that. And so you guys are giving me the opportunity now to outsource for the first time. And so we've ended up getting quite a lot of business from advisors who had been doing it themselves for years and for whatever reason wanted to outsource. And there are lots of different reasons why advisors uh, decide they don't want to do it themselves anymore. But I it's a significant part of our business really. And so it's pretty evenly divided, I think at this point between advisors who've been working with other, other camps and like what we were doing better. And then <laughs> advisors who just didn't want to do it themselves anymore. Yeah. And, you know, competition between camps, I'm sure is, is pretty intense. And, and you've written for us a few times uh, on some of the uh, fiduciary issues that could come along using a partner you know, uh, uh, there was that SEC warning that came out just a few months ago, I guess, that to you, you mm-hmm. wrote that I thought was, was pretty interesting on wealthmanagement.com. You want to tell us a little bit about what you saw there and what you think uh, most advisors Sure. Are? Yeah. Well, I think what's happened is a lot of firms decided that they wanted to be in the TAMP business, but they didn't necessarily appreciate what the TAMP business really is. So with the TAMP, the TAMP business, would you boil it down, it's, a, it's an asset management business, right? It's just, a, it's a very specialized form of asset management business. And I think of us as asset managers every day. I don't think of us, even though we have great technology, I don't think of us as a technology firm. I don't think of us as a marketing firm. I think of us as an asset management firm. And I think that's how, that's kind of the culture that we've developed. And so a lot of the firms got into the business and um, especially newer firms and said, hey, you know what we should do? We should package this asset management thing up with technology and we'll give the advisors um, a lot of technology that will be really cool. And they'll come to work with us just so they can get the technology and then we'll get the assets and we'll get the fee off the assets. Um, and, and then others said, hey, I have you know, a specialty and I, I can teach advisors how to uh, sell and market their services and so forth. So they would package these um, training programs up with, uh, with the asset management um, uh, services. And I think what, what's happened is if you, if you kind of follow the money, the client is paying a fee to the TAMP and the TAMP is providing asset management services, but they're also providing services to the advisor, many of which are of questionable value to the client, right? So in effect, the client is is paying for services that go to the advisor. And I think there's a major fiduciary problem there. It's, it's very much like the back in the old days when there was um, uh, soft dollar issues in the brokerage 
uh, industry where uh, brokers were directing their clients' assets to, to market makers and the market makers were kind of kicking back dollars to the, the broker dealers. And so the SEC got involved there and set up some rules and so forth. And I think this, but the same thing seems to be happening here. And I, and my fear is I don't really, I don't really mind the competition if, you know, if competition wants to offer technology or training in some specialty they have, that's great, more power to them. But I worry that the advisors are not appreciating the fact that they're kind of walking into a fiduciary booby trap, if you will, and that they're going to, the SEC is going to show up someday on their door and go, you know, what, so explain to me this relationship you have with the TAMP. And they're going to see pretty quickly that the, the asset management fees that the client's paying are going to buy services for the advisor that don't benefit the, the client. And that, that is a, a fundamental fiduciary problem. And, and I think the SEC last year, when they issued their risk alert about RAP fee programs, made that pretty clear. If you don't, um, if you don't make the decision to hire a TAMP or a RAP fee program in, in that particular situation, um, based on what's in the client's best interest and have due diligence procedures in place and follow those procedures and and make disclosures about conflicts of interest and so forth, you have a big problem. And so, yeah, so that's the article, you know, the most recent article that I wrote for you guys was on that topic. And I just, to me, it's, I feel a little bit like Paul Revere <laughs> riding through town and, you know, in the middle of the night going, you know, the SEC is coming, the SEC is coming and trying to warn advisors just in general that this is a, a problem that they'll have. And, and frankly, maybe kind of a little wake up call to the industry in general that they need to watch this problem. Because I think a lot of the, the firms that are doing it aren't really thinking of it that way. They're, they're thinking that they're, they're doing this great thing for the advisors that they work with, but they're not really, see, I'm a, I'm a former lawyer. You know, I've, my, my, my career started at, you know, as a securities lawyer back in Washington, DC. So I think about these things in terms of the legal aspects. And, and I think a lot of the firms that are uh, doing this don't really think about it quite the same way. Right. I agree. It's, it's, and it's pervasive, right? I mean, we hear all the time from yeah. the awesome management firms that are, you know, trying to sell things through the advisor, you know, our added value programs are added. Value. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's a, I think it's a big issue. And I think each, each advisor needs to think through that. And each asset management firm needs to think through that uh, set of issues, because again, getting back to the, um, Getting back to the beginning of this conversation, right? The thing that that ultimately that I'm concerned about is the in, the investing public. You know, what are the, you know what are the people who are paying for all this getting for for their fee? And I think they they deserve better than the situation that they have. That you know, some of these firms right now. And to be clear, some of that added value could be in the client's benefit, right? I mean, some of it could, yeah. So this is, I mean, it's it's not that. Um, it's it's not that uh, all of it is um, is not to the client's benefit. Like I mean, we obviously provide services, we provide uh, advisors, for example, with a lot of client education material. You know, I think one of the major challenges of our industry, the asset management industry, and and really the wealth management industry in general, is just all the behavioral issues that clients have, and they're this financial illiteracy problem that we describe. So we produce tons of material to help advisors educate their clients. Well, I think that's pretty directly uh, benefiting the clients, right? There's, you know, that, you know, I can um, sit in a, in a room with an SEC examiner and comfortably explain how that, um, how that benefits the client, but not all of the, the, the services that TAMPs are offering these days would be so 
easily explained. And I think that's, you know, that's the issue. So everybody's got to kind of sit down and go, oh yeah, let's take a look at the value added program we have. And, and it's, it's not even that, um, you know, that they couldn't continue to offer the services. It's just that the, the advisors would need to pay for them themselves. And that would solve the problem. You know, that it wouldn't be a conflict of interest anymore. The, the client's money wouldn't be paying for the services going to the advisor. So, um, big, yeah. it, you know, a big issue. I, I think, you know, I've, in my own mind, I think, you know, in the next year or so, especially given the, the approach that I, that I think the SEC is taking to, to the advisor community right now, I think this is a, an issue that they'll, they'll get uh, focused on at some point. You think so? You think it's going to be a... I think so. Well, you know, you've got, um, they, they've, they've issued um, lots of enforcement actions uh, against firms that were using 12B1 fees and, and you know, high high expense uh, ratio um, fees in client portfolios when they didn't have to. So they were focused on, you know, the clients paying too much in that situation. They looked at the wrap fee um, situation, which was the risk alert that I um, mentioned in the article that I wrote for you guys. They also looked at advisors uh, running private equity and private hedge fund type um, uh uh, operations and found the same sort of fiduciary issues there. They issued a, another risk alert recently. They found that advisors were not being very um, uh, good in terms of how they how they were billing their clients or making refunds to their clients when their clients you know left the firm. Um, just they're just looking at all of these these areas where ad- advisors are doing things that are costing their clients money and. The SEC is not happy with that, and and frankly, I don't blame them. I think that that's that is their job. Their investor protection uh, part of their job uh, requires them to take a look at these kinds of things. So um, I think you know we've got some pretty good um, folks over there at the SEC now. You know, Gensler and Barbara Roper and some other people who I think are very sensitive to the um, issues of the uh, investor on the street, and I think they're gonna they're gonna show up and uh, expect advisors to have thought through these issues and, and figured out how to deal with the conflicts that come. As a former securities lawyer, you know, the winds of change in Washington can, you know, change the scrutiny or the yep. with which the SEC examines these things. Were you surprised to see Gensler hire Barbara Roper? Uh, uh, yeah, that was, uh, that was a little bit of a surprise for me. Um, I, I was really happy about it. I've, you know, I, I don't know her or Gensler and, and, uh, but I followed, um, Barbara Roper pretty closely because I, you know, I applaud her efforts on behalf of uh, the end investor. Investment yeah. Investment. And she's, she's, but she's, she's one of those people that, you know, rarely gets brought into, you know, into the, uh, the inner sanctum of government just because, you know, she's, you know, she's got a very clear point of view and, and she, um, you know, she's, she doesn't strike me as a political person. She strikes me as a person who's got a, you know, a cause and she believes in it very, you know, very dearly and uh, more power to her. I love that about her. But um, that, that just struck me a little bit um, out of the realm of my expectations anyway, but I was glad to see it. That this regime of the SEC might be a little more uh, intensely scrutinizing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think this is the thing, you know, again, it kind of goes back to this, this topic, um, you know, we started out with, the industry, the industry has a lot of practices and approaches um, investors in ways that I think really could could be improved. And I think it's not that 
you know, it's not that the industry is full of bad guys and thieves. I think it's just a lot of it's, you know, it's just the way the industry has grown up and some of the things that we do just they're really out of habit. I mean, this was, you know, this again, going back to the first ascent, you know, Genesis story, this was really what happened to me was I was sitting around at one point thinking, you know, why are we doing things this way? Why are we charging, you know, AUM fees when it doesn't make any sense? And why, why aren't we educating clients better? And why aren't we managing portfolios to keep costs low? And, um, and you know, it's just a series of questions. And I, I didn't have very good answers. So I thought, well, okay, fine, let's start a company and do all of those things. Um, yeah, and I, I, did, I, did, you know, I know I'm keeping past our, a lot of time here, but uh, I did want to just dive back a little bit into your past because, like I say, this is not your first uh, company that you started. You started as a securities lawyer. Uh, yep. uh, give us the, the quick uh, run-up to, to where you are now. Yeah, so I, I, I worked in Washington, D.C. I actually started when I was in law school. I went to law school in Washington, D.C., and I was an intern at the SEC in the Division of Investment Management Regulation, which regulates investment advisors and mutual funds, which you know, I, I, I didn't know what an investment advisor or a mutual fund was back then, but I learned pretty quickly. And so I got started in um, at the SEC as an intern and then uh, practiced law for about 15 years in Washington. Uh, then I went to work for one of my clients that was in the investment management business. They were actually a, a pension consulting firm and, um, and and it was at that when I went to work there and we, we formed what was really the first mutual fund TAMP uh, in the country. And, and so was a member of that founding group. That firm got bought by PMC out in Denver. That's how I ended up here. So I moved out to Denver with that acquisition. And, um, and PMC then became the first firm to combine mutual fund managed account programs with separately managed account programs. So that was kind of fun building that platform. And I became president of PMC um, not long after I arrived there. And then uh, PMC um, shortly after that got bought by InvestNet. Now they're, you know, they're part of the InvestNet organization. Before that happened, I left and started a consulting firm. I worked with a lot of firms like um, Russell and Bear Stearns and Oppenheimer Funds and Schwab and so forth, helping them develop managed account programs for uh, financial advisors. And then I went to work at US Fiduciary, which was down in in Texas and um, worked down there, building one of the first uh, platforms for breakaway brokers. So we we combined a broker dealer and a managed account platform. And Elliot Weisbluth, you know, who later founded Hightower, uh, was part of that organization. And we um, built kind of the precursor of Hightower and and Dynasty and all of that uh, ilk. And uh, and then I went to work at um, with some friends of mine who I I knew from my um, earlier days. Uh, at Frontier Asset Management and um, and was president of that firm for eight years, I think, and uh, grew that firm to about $2 billion and, and then uh, left and started first ascent. So I, I think this is my fifth TAMP that I've been a part of and um, been in the asset management business for about 30 years now. So um, I, I don't I didn't grow up as a little boy thinking I wanted to be in the TAMP business because that wasn't uh, on my radar screen and that term TAMP hadn't been invented yet. But uh, but here I am and I've been here for a long time and um, really love what I'm doing. Yeah, and always uh, sort of navigate to the kind of the cutting edge of, of you know, the, the RIA side of the space, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, it's been, I mean, this is the thing I like about, you know, I've always been with relatively small companies and this is the... Uh, thing that I really have learned about myself over the years is 
I'm a pretty creative person and I like being in a place where we can do new things and, and make decisions quickly and, and, and kind of turn on a dime and do things that maybe other larger firms wouldn't be able to do or um, wouldn't have the courage to do. <laughs> I'm not afraid to, to try something and fail, I guess, is, uh, is part of it. And so I, I, I just love trying to, you know, trying to think about what the next thing is that you could do that would make, um, you know, make life better for the, you know, the, the people that we're serving. So that's, that's the mission. Well, that's fantastic. Uh, I, I've kept you too long, Scott. Uh, I appreciate your time. Thanks very much. Uh, sure. And, uh, it's been a pleasure, David. Thanks very much. We'll keep an eye out for the uh, direct indexing announcement. and It'll be out soon. All right. Okay. You take care. Thank you. Bye. This has been David Armstrong. You've been listening to the Advisor Innovations Podcast. This podcast is sponsored by LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor and member of FINRA SIPC. LPL Financial is a separate entity from and not affiliated with wealthmanagement.com.